going to be in the Gospel of Acts this morning. Continuing to look a little bit at the early church, fast-forwarding a little bit, we're going to be in chapter 7, looking at the closing verses. The story is the story of the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the first persecution. We're going to begin at verse 54, but let's just start by looking at the backstory. I, when I started studying this, preparing for this message, I went back to the beginning of chapter 7, which is Stephen's speech, which is the speech he gives that leads to him being condemned and killed by the religious leaders. And I read through the whole thing, and it was really interesting to me, you can go home and read it later if you want, that the majority of Stephen's speech is telling the religious leaders what they already know. He talks about Moses, he talks about the patriarchs, he talks about the history of Israel and Egypt and the coming out. He talked about the calling of Moses and the vast majority of what he says is just all things that even the eight-year-old Jewish boys in school would have been able to recite and say. And it's not till the very end, at least in the account that we're given, maybe he said some more, but the vast majority up until right at the end is when he begins to be condemning in verse 51 and he says you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the holy spirit as your fathers did so do you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it three verses and that was enough for the religious leaders. So our passage begins in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. As I read this passage, as I prayed through this passage this week, the end is what stood out to me. And in particular, these words that Stephen utters when he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So the first question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, why did Stephen say that? Now, one of the first answers, of course, is because that's what Jesus said when he was on the cross, when he was being unjustly killed. And this passage is an example of Stephen as an early Christian following in the footsteps of Christ. And that right there, if we're honest, is not a bad message. When we are in times of adversity, if we're not sure what to do, 
doing exactly what Jesus did in the same circumstance is a very good place to start, right? That's a good reason why he did it. And, and why Luke included it. Both of those are important, right? Why did Stephen do it, and why did Luke feel that we needed to know? That's one reason. We could also look at and discuss and think about just the amazing strength of the peace within Stephen, that he could be unjustly and fairly brutally murdered, and yet still be thinking more about the people throwing the stones than about himself. And that also is a pretty good sermon. It is a testimony of the strength and the power and the depth of the life change in the people of the early church. However, whenever we possibly can, we should try to understand as deep as we possibly can in our faith, right? If you drive a car, which most of you probably do, uh, it's good to know that you should put oil in it. It's perhaps a little better if you understand why, right? Uh, It's good when you're growing up to understand that and, and know that you shouldn't just live on Oreos and Doritos, right? It's a lot better to understand what the health ramifications would be if you did live exclusively on Oreos and Doritos. Because some of you, I would have migraines all day, but some of you might enjoy that diet. And it's one thing to say, I'm not supposed to eat Oreos and Doritos and nothing else. It's a lot more beneficial to understand why, right? Same principle applies. And there are times, we're going to get there, (laughs) we're going to hit that wall later in this sermon, where we go as far as we can. We understand as much as we are able. But I wanted to dive into this a little deeper this morning what, and talk about not just what prompted the action or what was perhaps an excuse, how can we split, but what did it do? That was the question I got stuck on this week. What did it do when Stephen said that? Because it was important enough for him to say it with his dying breath. It was important enough for Luke in his meticulous, his meticulous narrative about the early church. It was important enough that Luke included it. So what did it do? As I uh, considered that this week, I was reminded... I don't like to bounce around between passages in my sermons. I don't do it often. But in this instance, I think it's important. In John chapter 20, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. In John chapter 20, we read this a couple weeks ago. And I think I might have said we'll talk about it another time, not knowing this is coming. John chapter 20, uh, verse 21. We'll start there. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so I just bounced back and forth between those two scriptures throughout this week. And I just would sit in my chair and I would just think of one and think of the other. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So what does it mean? What did it do? If we look at the text in John, first of all, Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on the disciples. There's a lot of discussion among scholars about what that meant. Was it John's account of, of the event of Pentecost? Was it, was it a, uh, some have said it's, it, it was an kind of outward Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit kind of went on them externally, but hadn't gone internally yet. And there's all of this discussion and nobody really agrees on it. But I was thinking about it this week and I think there's a much simpler explanation before we get to those, which is you needed to know that before you got to verse 23. And Jesus said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, but not without the Holy Spirit, right? So I think this doesn't satisfy the other discussion, but before that discussion, Jesus needed to tell the disciples and teach them this this teaching about them and forgiving, but that doesn't come without the Holy Spirit. And he wanted to make sure that they knew that until they had received the Holy Spirit, that did not apply. And you'll notice in Acts, Luke is specific, right? Where's the verse? 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, so Luke is also careful to say, before any of this happened, and isn't it interesting that it, he didn't, it wasn't enough that he just preached the whole message, right? At the beginning it says, uh, earlier in chapter 6, Stephen full of grace and power, right? And then again, right before the end, but he full of the Holy Spirit, before we have this discussion about forgiveness. Luke is careful to make sure we understand we could have assumed it, but he makes sure we understand that that provision was met. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit when he does this. So we know, again, now we're getting, we're venturing into that territory where we, we begin to start to get a, a little limited. I was uh, sitting around the breakfast table with John and Julie this morning. We're both very adept uh, theological scholars in their own right. I don't know if they like the word scholars or not, but I'm going to use it. And, uh, and we had a discussion, and I just had a couple questions of, I haven't found an answer. Do you have one? And I said, no, we don't really have an answer to that either. So we're approaching that. We don't fully understand all of the dynamics and the depth of forgiveness. But we do know that Jesus told us, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And we seek to figure out what that means. So as I looked into it, the Greek word used for forgive, the Greek word athiemi, it's a word that means to separate. And just like in English, the word separate is often used to describe a divorce in a marriage. If you read through the New Testament, uh, as you go primarily through the Gospels, it is often used in regard to forgiveness in, in a sin context. And then as we move into the epistles, 
in the teachings, especially of Paul, it ends up being used a lot to describe a divorce. It's this idea of separation, of bringing things apart. Now, to understand what that means for forgiveness, to understand at least as much as we can what is happening, what was accomplished is in Stephen's pronouncement and his request to God about those who were stoning him, we have to understand sin a little bit. We're really good, we're really comfortable with the understanding of sin as a state of relationship between us and God. We're really good at understanding sin as as a debt to be paid, right? And if I have debt, which I, like most of you do, I have I have a house and I have a mortgage and, and that's a legal contract between myself and the bank and you understand all of the conditions of that. It's really fairly easy and we naturally understand that side of sin. And then, likewise, we really understand that side of forgiveness, where it is the forgiveness of a debt. When I was in um, when I was in college, I bought a car. I needed a little bit of extra money. My parents gave me the loan, and I was paying it back to them. And uh, my my graduation present was they canceled the rest of the debt, right? and they just handed me a paper. It said paid in full. And, and it was really powerful, it was impactful. I no longer had that, that debt hanging over me. It was a, a slight change in our relationship. It, it wasn't a huge amount of money. It wasn't putting strain on our relationship, but it was, it was there. It was canceled, and that felt really good. And it was very significant. And in the same way, it is very significant that our sin is a debt, needs to be paid for, fix our relationship with God and the brokenness between it. But if you read through the New Testament, you will find that there are many, many places where debt-type language is used to describe sin and forgiveness. But there's another phrase, term, type of language that is used to describe forgiveness just as much. It's the idea of cleansing, of purification, and washing. Now, I would never describe that interaction with my parents as me being washed, right? And even when we have debts that weigh on us and cause stress and anxiety, right? And, and we would describe that, if we're going to get metaphorical, use imagery, we would say a load was lifted off, right? Even if we're going to, to, to throw some imagery at that type of forgiveness of the debt, it's a, it's a, a burden we are no longer bearing. It's a weight off of our shoulders. It's not hanging over our heads. These are types of things we would say, but you don't have to wash if there's not something on you. You don't have to wash your hands unless there's germs on your hands. When my kids are outside playing in the mud and they come inside and I say, you have to wash up, it's not because they owe me something, it's because there's something on them. Something tangible. And we, we miss this, we forget this, it becomes irrelevant, it, for whatever reason. But sin, not physically, 
but spiritually sin is tangible. Let's say that again, because it's kind of a weird concept. Because tangible to us means physical, right? Like this, this is tangible. But there's the physical and there's the spiritual. They're both real. The spiritual realm is not hypothetical, right? It's not, it doesn't live, doesn't like live on in the cloud, like the difference between paper money and digital money. It's not a concept. And we won't, we can, I can teach about that, but we won't, we won't get into it today. But, but it is real and sin is tangible in the spiritual realm. Sin gets on your spirit in the spiritual realm, and it needs to be washed off. I read a book, and uh, I read it for the first time in like sixth grade. Uh, it's a book by Frank Peretti called The Oath. Anybody ever read it? A couple? Uh, the basic idea, Frank Peretti is a Christian kind of uh, horror-ish, does a lot of monster books, stuff like that. Um, all with Christian themes, and in in this book, it was this town kind of out in the woods, and there was this basically demonic being that um, resurfaced after a long time, and as people devoted themselves to it, it got stronger and more powerful. But the imagery that he used, and I love this, and it stuck with me for a very long time, is that the people that were devoted this demonic entity would have this black slime that began to come out of them. And by the end of the book, it said the, the entire town essentially had given their devotion and they were getting together and they were just just partying and, and hurting people. And it, it talked about how even the cups that were being passed back and forth were just covered in this black, sticky slime that wouldn't off. And that's such a good image of what sin does spiritually to us, that it gets on us and it is corrosive. It hurts us. And it doesn't have to be your sin, right? We see this concept in, in the New Testament. Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born disabled? He says, neither one. Neither one sin. Now, what's interesting about that is Jesus doesn't say this wasn't caused by sin. He said it wasn't him and it wasn't his parents. But he doesn't completely contradict the principle that pain, disability, and disease is directly a result of sin. And we know that it is, right? Because in the garden, there was no brokenness, pain, sickness, disease. In the coming kingdom, there will be no sickness, pain, death, disease. It's only in the middle where sin exists. So it's not that I sin and then God punishes me, but our sin, that sticky black slime, it hurts everyone. We all contribute to it. If I look at someone like Fred, who's bravely fighting, who I appreciate, and I have to recognize that his Parkinson's 
is as much a result of my sin. It's... I did just as much as he did. So sin is more than just, more than just a contract. It gets on us. It's how people die from addiction, right? They begin to allow sin into their life, and then the sin just corrodes them. It breaks them more and more and more. It enslaves them more and more and more. You look at children that grew up in broken homes that are so, they're just in so much pain. It's not because of their sin. It's because they lived with a father, with a mother, who was dripping with that black. And it covered every surface of that house. And they couldn't take a step in that environment. I'm getting it on. So what did it do? When Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What did it do when Jesus extended forgiveness, not only to the other thief on the cross for all of his sins and brought them to heaven, but he offered forgiveness for those on the ground for what they were doing in that moment? And Jesus didn't forgive the soldiers of all their sins. He didn't say, all your sins are forgiven. He didn't say to the soldiers, you'll be with me in paradise. We hope we hope and pray that later they came to believe, but in that moment, he forgave that sin. Why did Jesus do that? Well, when we begin to understand that sin is not just this breaking of a contract, but when we sin, it hurts us, it stays on us, it corrupts us, it brings us pain as, as it envelops us. Can you imagine how much sin would be placed on the men who crucified the Savior. I will remind you that Judas was not offered that forgiveness. At least not in our text. And Judas didn't last the week. Why did Jesus offer that forgiveness on the cross? What I believe is that the weight of that sin, the weight of the sin that would have been placed on those men for what they were doing to the Savior, the perfect Savior of the world, would have been more than they could have been. And he gave them a second chance of life. He saved them. They didn't express any faith in them, not enough to, but to give them the chance. Now again, we're venture, and I and I admit, we are venturing into territory that my brain is not big enough to fully understand. My finite, my mortal. But we need to talk about this church because there is an answer out there somewhere, and we need to get as close to it as we possibly can. What did it do? When Stephen said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Don't let that Don't let it stick to them. Don't let it curse them any more than they already are. 
May they leave this circumstance spiritually the same way they went into it. Still, They're still blind. They're still spiritually blind. Isn't it interesting? That the man who would one day write half the New Testament is one of the guys that got forgiven. The guy who ended up being used arguably more powerfully than any other single human being. Preached more places, planted more churches, developed our theology, that that man was here. And again, I'm not saying I'm not saying it thinking about it, if Stephen hadn't said that, he didn't have to, he could have just said nothing, and he wouldn't have been speaking in anger, he could have not cursed them, he could have not screamed at them, he could have not reviled them, he could have just been silent and still not sinned himself, still be in the spirit. If Stephen had not done that, what would Paul's story have looked like? I don't know. I'm not saying, right? I, I can't say that, and I'm not. But I think we need to think about it. To do something. Was Paul's story different because he was forgiven by Stephen? Then here's what it means for us. Why do we forgive others? Why do we forgive others? Is it just that contractual? I said something to hurt you, and I don't want you to hold it against against me, or or I said something to hurt you and I don't want you to still be hurt by it. I said that backwards. I think. You said something to me and I'm forgiving you, right? Because I don't want you to, I don't want a relationship to be broken. Is that why we forgive? And sometimes we forgive because we know that for us it is a release, right? We forgive someone and we're not carrying that bitterness. It, fr- it frees us. one of the reasons we forgive people when they don't ask us to do we have to tell people when they forgive when we forgive them I think we get this thought that if I'm going to forgive you I need to tell you because you need to know because otherwise it doesn't do anything for you now it says that Stephen cried out in a loud voice they obviously had to take their hands off their ears to throw the stones. They probably heard him, but he didn't have a conversation with them. He didn't make sure that they understood. You think it does something for the other person when you forgive them, even if you don't tell them about it. the things we're really hesitant to do in the church. And we need to be careful, we need to be cautious, we need to be disciplined, we need to not chase after ex- exclusively emotional experiences. We need to be careful about claiming any kind of power or authority from God that we have not been given. A lot of the time, church, 
I think we leave a lot of the authority that God has given us on the table. I think we've been given a lot more authority to speak life and truth, to speak change into our world, and we leave it on the table. We don't want to be too bold. And honestly, it doesn't really hurt anything if we think this way. If I begin to view my forgiveness of others as something that substantially and tangibly affects them, and my forgiveness of others puts them in a place where they are more able to respond to the gospel, to live the life that God has called them to, to have more peace and less broken, brokenness, forgiveness becomes a ministry to others. And we still reap the benefits. It still makes us feel better. It still, it still takes the burden off us, and it still ensures that sin doesn't have a place to grow within us through our bitterness. I think there's great power in it for the other as well. And here's the reality. Someone needs to be forgiven by you. Then they also need the grace of God in greater abundance. No matter who it is. No matter who it is. I don't care if it's an elder in the church that has been a Christian for 40 years, if they have done something to me that I need to forgive them for, there's room in their life for more grace of God. There's room in their life for sin to not have any kind of a hold on them. I pray that we would be a church that has eyes to see that. One of the most significant things that Jesus said was he who has ears to hear. And all the people there had ears. Right? Except for that one guy. With the one soldier. He, for a brief moment. They all had ears. A lot of them didn't have ears that could hear what he was saying. One of the greatest prayers we pray. I said it before, I'll say it a lot. The greatest prayer is, is, is just for sight. God, let me see. Let me see what's actually happening here and that's just eyes to see the spiritual because it's real it's not physical that's why it has a different name but it's real and if we have eyes to see it we see a bully who's just broken and it's really hard when the guy who's punching you and making your arm go numb on the school bus not a fake story it's hard to see anything but strength in that your arm hurts. Spiritualized see weakness, brokenness, and pain. We can have eyes to see that. You'll begin to see other people and know more about them than they know about themselves. You'll meet people for the first time and identify things about them that they're not even aware of because they don't have eyes to see it. They can't see that spectrum. They can't see... given the spirit if you've prayed if you've accepted if you're a Christian it's a free gift 
means you have power. You have authority. You have power to speak, to go go home. Go home and say, this house is a place of peace. Not being weird or mystical here, right? I'm not trying to say it, but your forgiveness has power. If we believe, then we need to really believe. We believe in the we can believe in the resurrection. If we can believe in the doctrine of atonement by grace, if we can believe that, we can believe that we've been given power. We're not given power. Believe it on the table. I'm a car guy, among many other things. But nothing more heartbreaking than a muscle car, 500 horsepower, sitting in a garage. That power is made to go. Your power is made to go. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the example. And that was the word that so many used to describe you, was the authority with which you spoke. Holy Spirit came down, it looked like a dove, and it rested, and it remained on you. It didn't go back where it came from, like with the other prophets, it remained on you. And in everything you did, you had authority over everything. The wind, over the waves, over the demonic, over brokenness, over pain. Guess what? We believe that there's one Holy Spirit a member of the Trinity, which means we didn't get we didn't get the generic version at Pentecost. It's not a different one. It's not a knockoff. It's not a lower model. It's it's a person, and it's the same one. And we're not strong, but we're given strength. We're not wise, but we're given wisdom. We are blind, but we are given sight, and we have none. We have no authority because we gave it away in the garden. We gave away our authority. But you bought it back. And we are now, the church today is experiencing the first fruits of that day where all the sin and all the pain is gone. But we experience the first fruits. So not in everything, not in every place, not over every pain, not over every sickness. But as you will, we are given the authority to do, to change. The world knows this. The world knows the, the power, even just the power that we're given through provenient grace as your people. To say that someone looks beautiful and watch their whole demeanor change. Even just with provenient grace. We have a degree of authority that many of us Christians don't exercise enough. But those who are here, those are of us who are accepting of your forgiveness, who are given the person of the Spirit. May we never lose sight for even a moment of where that power comes from, 
or on whose authority we are able to speak, but may we not be afraid to speak with that authority. May we understand that our forgiveness has consequences for the benefit of others. And may we live in that. Jesus, you are so good to us. Thank you for the example. May we forgive others when they harm us as quickly as you forgave those who harmed you on the cross. May we heal and bring life into our world. 